Eavesdropping is welcome on the desert's best conversations with Charlie Dyer. When she was six years old, our guest today had a realization that she was white. This new awareness came after an innocent conversation with a fellow student at school, followed by confusion and shame after a teacher's anxiety-induced response left her with the knowledge that there was something loaded about race, but with no idea what it was. Children today have those same realizations. For parents and teachers knowing how to respond to those realizations and the inevitable questions about our racially unjust society they raise is essential. Thank you so much, Dr. Jennifer Harvey, for being here today on Conversations with Charlie Dyer on iHub Radio. Thanks, Charlie. It's good to be with you. Well, Dr. Jennifer Harvey's new book is Raising White Kids, Bringing Up Children in a Racially Unjust America. Dr. Harvey is a writer, speaker, and professor at Drake University and has worked as an anti-racism activist and studied children's development. Her work focuses on racial justice and white anti-racism. Dr. Harvey's other books include Whiteness and Morality and Dear White Christians for Those Still Longing for Racial Reconciliation. Dr. Harvey also contributes to CCN, NPR, The New York Times, and Huffington Post, and is an ordained minister in the American Baptist churches. Check out the website RaisingWhiteKids.com. Well, the new book starts with a bit of a cautionary tale that I mentioned there in the intro when you were just six years old. So talk about how you first realized that you were white. And, And how did your teacher, Mrs. B, tell you everything she thought you needed to know about race in one little short admonishment. Yeah. So I was a child in Denver, Colorado, when we were involved in busing because we were under a desegregation mandate, which means in first grade and and for some time thereafter, I was racially a minority um, in terms of the demographics in our classroom. Well, one day, one of my white friends came up in the hallway and she said, hey, Jenny, we need to start a white girls club. And I must have looked a little surprised because then she said, you know, because we're only one of six white girls in this class. And I remember having this moment of recognition where I literally looked down and thought, oh, she's right. I am a white girl. And um, our teacher, who was also white, happened to be walking by at that moment. And she just snapped us right off and said, girls, I don't ever want to hear you talking like that again. Um, And so I, you know, like, you know, I like to be a rule follower. I was clear we had done something wrong. I had no idea what it was. And so it just sort of scared the heck out of me and made me feel really bad. And so I was pretty careful not to go near race for a long time after that. And what year are we talking about here? So that would have been about 1977, I guess, because it was first grade and I'm almost 50 now. So uh, we're, we're, you know, in more recent uh, history. I mean, when you talk about busing and segregation, I think of like the 1950s. So this was happening 20 years later still. Yeah, right. Because it was only in the 50s that we formally got the laws changed to say that segregation was illegal and unconstitutional. And it was another nearly 20 years before the you know entire country followed suit. So busing, you know, mandated busing for integration was really a 1970s, um, early 80s, perhaps kind of initiative. Of course, we've now mostly done away with it, which is unfortunate, actually, I think. Well, Jennifer, you've been teaching ethics to college students for over a decade. And in that time, what have you noticed happens to these uh, white students when you introduce the topic of race to them? Well, Charlie, they freak out. Um, When I walk into class and I say to my students, we're going to study or talk about race today, 
students of color in my classes are just ready to go. They're, you know, able, eager. Um, they've got a language for race and racism. White students kind of look like deer in headlights. And, you know, they sort of, I think, I imagine them saying, like, please, could we talk about abortion? That would be so much easier. <laughs> <laughs> and they'd really just kind of panic because it's the first time or one of few times in their lives they've had an adult expect them to be able to engage in good conversation about race. And so they just haven't done it. How do you approach that in, in a way that makes them feel more at ease? Well, I tell all of my students, white students and students of color, um, I, I actually invite them to notice the different reactions they have. And then what I say to them all is, you know, you all have pretty much just walked into a classroom where I've said we're going to study calculus together. And some of you have been doing calculus for most of your lives. And so you're ready to go. And others of you basically have, you know, feel like, oh my gosh, I barely know addition. No one ever taught me more than addition. And I'm really embarrassed about someone finding that out. And then I tell them that, you know, this is one of the problems with race in the United States is that not all of our communities have been doing their job. And so that somehow we're going to have to figure out how to do math together, but that they need to understand that they've all been kind of set up for a very frustrating conversation because so many white adults have not brought up a generation of youth ready and able to talk about race in meaningful ways. Well, talk about how you compare racial development to physical, intellectual, and emotional development. So it's really helpful for parents to know and other adults who have children in their lives that just like we understand that children develop emotionally and biologically, intellectually, um, children develop racially. And so because we know that children develop emotionally, as caregivers or good parents, we are attentive to their emotional development. We offer them strategies. We teach them the language of feelings. We do all kinds of things to support that growth. Um, but what happens with white children is that children are developing a racial identity because we live in a racialized society. But very few white children or youth get active support and nurture um, around their development. And so while we know that in families of color, kids and youth are being explicitly taught about race in age-appropriate ways that is important for helping them move through their own racial identity development, white kids and youth really tend to not get that. And that creates all kinds of problems, including for their peers of color as they grow up. Even though you have worked on anti-racism for a really long time, focusing on the role of white people, becoming a parent yourself challenged what you thought you had known all along. So tell us more about that, Jennifer. I've been involved in anti-racist activism and organizing um, for almost 20 years. And, um, you know, and this me meant, has meant in my life both, you know, being engaged in racial justice work in very multiracial um, contexts. Also teaching other white Americans how to, um, you know, get more involved in multiracial justice work. And this especially in my life has been around, uh, you know, a great deal of work around issues of police brutality. Um, and I realized in about 2013, 2014, that just because I was very, um, spending tons of time in those spaces, understood that world, that language, that all of a sudden I didn't know what that meant in the life of my two-year-old and my three-year-old. I know I could stand in front of a group of folks and talk about organizing against police brutality, but I didn't know what I should be telling my own to my own white children who were young at the time about their own racial identity and what it meant to actively teach them and, and support their anti-racist development. And I also realized that there were a whole bunch of other white adults who were trying to actively 
um, commit to racial justice who also really didn't know what that meant. And so I realized there was this huge gap in organizing for social justice among those of us who had young children in our lives. And so I decided to think about that in a more serious way. Well, many well-meaning white parents teach their children not to notice and certainly not to mention race. So what's wrong with this kind of colorblind approach to racial difference, Jennifer? Why is it both useless and impossible? And, and how does it actually harm our kids? So it's useless because they simply do. It's simply a neurological fact that our children notice difference And it's a developmental fact, and a million studies have shown this, that all of our children, not just white children, the moment they, you know, go out into the world and have any kind of social interactions, they, their brains start to make sense out of race. They notice um, who's in what spaces, who's not in what spaces. They start to internalize negative stereotypes about people of color and false superior stereotypes about white people because of the society we live in. And so if we're teaching our children colorblindness, we're basically having leaving them to just sort of navigate that experience on their own while also telling them something that is simply not the case. Um, And so it does a lot of harm because they end up sort of making sense on their own about what they see out in the world. So that's one really big problem with it. The other important thing parents need to know is that we think we're teaching colorblindness because we're teaching our kids that they should value equality. You know, we all bleed the same blood, so difference doesn't matter. But what we're actually doing also is usually we're talking about an African-American person or a Latino person when we say, oh, don't notice their difference. We're all the same after all. And there's this insidious way that message what our kids hear is, oh, there's something wrong with their dark skin, but we're just going to overlook that, you know, and we're going to act like it's not there, which translates in their mind to actually doubling down on this negative association between dark skin and, um, and difference. And so it actually really backfires in all kinds of ways. Talk about how a parent might actually respond when their three-year-old, for instance, points to a person of of a different race, doesn't matter, white, you know, Indian, whatever, and and makes a comment sometimes, you know, as three-year-olds do pretty loudly in public about that person's skin color. Yeah, so this is a great example. Um, And it's almost always going to be someone who, not who is white that's getting pointed at because that's what white children do. And so the first thing, I want to say to parents is we need to take a deep breath and just calm ourselves for a moment because we freak out because race is so loaded for adults. It's not yet loaded for a two-year-old or a three-year-old. The next thing we need to do is treat it as we would any other issue of rudeness that our young child who doesn't yet know any better does. And so first I would say to the adult they pointed at, I apologize. I don't know if that, you know, bothered you or offended you, but I'm sorry that my child just pointed at you like that. And then I might turn to my child and say, yes, that that person has beautiful brown skin or that, you you know, something something along those lines to put a positive association on the difference that my child is noticing. And then I would go on to say, but honey, it's not polite. It's rude to point at people. And so that's the way I would handle the moment, which isn't perfect. And we don't know how that person is going to respond, but that's the best we can do in that moment. But proactively, then I'm also going to notice that I've clearly not got my child in enough truly diverse and desegregated spaces. And so I'm going to proactively commit to really making sure that I do more of that so they're less likely to be pointing to begin with. Jennifer, when should a parent of white kids start introducing conversations about race? I mean, you write about racial chatter that parents can introduce to even very young children. We're just talking about a three-year-old there. So what's chatter, quote unquote? 
So I think of it as the ability to talk about race from the moment our children come out of the womb. And we start chattering at our kids right away. We're like, oh, look, mommy's da-da-da-da-da. And, oh, look, the sky's so blue today. And there's a beautiful um, tree over there. And we just start chattering. We need to make the language of difference just roll off the tongue off our own tongues and between us and our child, even before they have language. So I'm going to be saying things like, oh, look at your sister over there. And she has peach skin. And this person in this book, they have dark brown skin. And she's African-American. And this person is a white American. And just kind of chattering, knowing that my child is not conceptually yet able to put all those pieces together, but interrupting the white silence that really dominates in most white families. There is no time that is too early to start using the language of difference with our children. And we know this if we remind ourselves that we actually difference and in race is a good that we want to positively engage our children around questions of race right from from the get go. And so there's no age that's too young. How is uh, race-conscious parenting different than simply teaching our kids that they should value diversity and, and difference? I mean, what do you mean when you write in Raising White Kids that well, we are not just different? So that's such an important question because more and more families and more and more school systems are using value diversity language instead of colorblindness, and that is progress. The problem is valuing diversity is not enough when you live in a society that also has systemic injustice in it. And so we cannot only tell white children that they should value diversity. We should tell them that. We should model that, yes. But we need to go another step further and we need to teach them from young ages what racism is so that when they see it and encounter it, which it happens on the school playground from much younger ages than adults often realize, that they know it, they know what it is when they see it. And the reasons that is so important is because the only way we can develop anti-racist um, commitments and skills in our kids is if they know what racism is. And so valuing diversity doesn't bring in the anti-racism piece. And we have to explicitly do that. It's not just going to happen by accident. Well, Jennifer, you bring up when discussing stereotypes with young children, something you once said about uh, gender. So why is it so remarkable that you said when you were about four (laughs) years old, again, we're talking about really young kids here, that only men can be doctors? Uh, What might your mother, who is a doctor, by the way, have said when she finished laughing? Well, when she finished laughing, she said, what are you talking about? Because indeed, someone had asked me if I wanted to be a doctor when I grew up. And I knew perfectly well my mother was a doctor. And I looked at this adult deadpan in the face and I said, girls can't be doctors. They can only be nurses. And why that's so remarkable and why it's so important. And the reason I shared in the book is because it's a great example of how the stereotypes and the sort of smog in the air that our kids are breathing in all the time, it beca- it sort of fills and shapes their consciousness in ways that we as adults have to constantly work against actively and explicitly. It's just not going to be enough to just hope for the best and teach our kids to be good people because look at how profound my sexism was even as a four-year-old with a medical doctor mom in the house. Yeah, that is uh, pretty remarkable to have that kind of... Uh overarching programming take over when the person who supposedly is the most important part of your uh, early childhood development uh, wasn't the top of mind for you. Exactly. Exactly. Isms are just that powerful. They're just everywhere. And so we've got to treat them like smog in the air. That's uh, Dr. Tatum's metaphor and actively put breathing masks on our kids if we want to have 
you know, the ability to not only filters those out, but grow children who are able then themselves to commit to creating healthier air for all of us. Well, you deliberated for some time before you decided not to tell your kids that uh, Michael Brown had been killed by police in Ferguson, an incident that happened uh, in the recent past, yet you took them to protest. So talk about your decision to do that, Jennifer. Yeah, so I deeply believe that one of the ways especially white adults need to teach our children anti-racism is also sort of like chatter, getting them in spaces early in their lives where people are resisting racism. I want my kids to believe and to understand that fighting for racial justice is a normal and a good thing to do and that they can and want to be part of that. And so I started taking my kids to the protests that I was also involved in from very, very young ages. And the reason I wrestle with that in the book and, for example, didn't tell them Michael Brown was killed was that when he was killed, they were so young that I really wasn't sure I was ready to say um, the language of death with them around this, um, this horrible, violent tragedy that happened to Michael Brown. But I still felt like it was important enough that I take them to the protest, that I took the risk of them hearing that anyway. But what I chose to do was just tell him he had been deeply, deeply harmed, hurt by this police officer. But I emotionally prepared myself that they might go and hear something more significant than that. But a piece of what I was also doing, and a lot of times I think white adults need to understand, is that our kids will often filter out what they're not quite ready to engage, and we can use that as a signal for what they're ready to talk about and not. And so, for example, they did hear that that day that he'd been killed, but neither of them commented on it. It didn't sort of stick in their brain, but other important lessons about fighting for racial justice did. Parents of white children often look the other way or don't say anything in the face of racism because they just don't know what to say. Can you give us an example of a, of a teachable moment, perhaps from your own experience with your own kids, Jennifer? Yeah. So I, I think about the time that, you know, this was one of early in my journey of really worrying and being conscious about this when my young, you know, my older child, she was about three, I think, uh, I overheard her singing one little, two little, three little Indians. And in the moment, um, I realized I wasn't exactly sure what to tell her about why I didn't want her singing that song. I didn't, you know, I wasn't ready to use the language of genocide with her, but I also want to, knew I needed to, um, use the moment to talk about native peoples and their experience. And so, but I didn't know what to say in the moment. And so actually in the moment, I just, pause and didn't say anything. And I gave myself three or four hours to sort of breathe and think it through, circled back with her later that evening and, you know, and engaged the conversation then. But so I think parents see, sort of need to understand that, you know, we worry a lot about getting it right, especially around issues of race. And it's deeply important that we continue to educate and get better at our engagements with our kids. But it's also important to know that taking a deep breath, pausing and circling back to a conversation after we've had a chance to think it through, after we've had a chance to go get some resourcing ourselves, is can also be a really great way to handle conversations with our kids that we're not sure how to address right in the moment. But we need to commit to circling back. Yeah, I was going to say, it seems that a lot of parents, what they'll do is, oh, we'll talk about that later, and later becomes never. Never. <laughs> yeah, and that's, I mean, that's the risk. And I also, I always need to address it in some way in the moment if people of color are in this space and have been impacted negatively by something that my child has said or done or another white American has said or done. And so there are times when an in-the-moment response is critically important. But as long as we 
commit to circling back, sometimes breathing a little bit for a few hours. Um, and, you know, having the conversation again before bedtime, sometimes I've done my best anti-racist parenting when I've given myself a little bit of time to really kind of think things through first. Well, three years ago, you took your kids, then aged five and seven, to a Black Lives Matter protest. Your seven-year-old at the time wanted to make her own sign, and, and her wording actually brought tears to you. And um, talk about what the sign said, and, and how does it reflect what she had learned about race in these conversations, as you were putting her to bed, uh, without your, um, your direct instruction? Yeah, so that experience was profound for me. Um, when I went to get my kids to take them to the protest, I came in and my daughter's sign um, said Black Lives Matter and it was green and red and had hearts and stars all over it. And then it said, um, stop killing them. They matter the same as white. And then below that, and you need to know, your listeners need to know, my daughter has two cousins who are black and my sister-in-law, her aunt is black. And she had written, people who are black are and she had written the names of these family members. And what blew my mind was that I realized in that moment that I had essentially allowed my child to have her heart broken by the real cost of racial violence against black and brown communities in our nation. And even though my own heart smashed into a million pieces when I saw that, I was also deeply grateful that I had um, had the support and the um, sort of courage emboldened by others to do that because it made me realize she understood that racism is real, it has real consequences, it has consequences for real people, and that she understands that some of those people are her most beloved people, and so that she saw her own stake in going to that protest. She had connected the dots for herself, and that, to my mind, is one of the most important things we do because it was a signal to me my daughter was still human and in touch with her own humanity enough that she was still identifying with the actual humanity of African-American people who are at risk of police violence. And so it was a very hard moment, but it was a, quite a profound moment for me as a mom. Dr. Jennifer Harvey is our guest today on Conversations with Charlie Dyer on iHub Radio. The new book is Raising White Kids, Bringing Up Children in a Racially Unjust America. Check out the website, RaisingWhiteKids.com. Thank you so much for being here today. Charlie, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. I'd like to know what you think of Conversations. Drop me an email to charlie.dyer at iHubRadio.com. Thank you for listening. I'm Charlie Dyer.